audio has produced some really nice benefits for Basecamp in terms of what I would say our broad goal is with the podcast, which is just getting our point of view out there. Welcome to our weekly show, Brands at Podcasts, where we focus on one thing only, showing you behind the scenes of how some of the best brands in the world are using podcasting to grow. All right, my guest today is someone who gets my vote as producing some of the best podcast content for a brand of, honestly, like anyone out there. Waylon Wong is the producer of Basecamp's Rework Podcast which explores the themes from their book titled the same name, Rework, which covers you know topics like bootstrapping, growing slow, staying small. And previously, she produced Basecamp's podcast called The Distance, which ran for, I believe, about two years. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that, Waylon, but it covered stories of privately held businesses that are at least 25 years old, which I thought was a really unique approach and a lens to have podcast guests on and and covering those sort of stories that maybe don't get as much of the limelight as they should. So welcome, Waylon, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'm excited to chat today because you've been at this for several years now with Basecamp and helping create one of the best podcasts I have seen out there for a company. And I'm curious, like how we can apply some of the lessons that you have learned along the way not only just from the production standpoint, but how you look at it from like a marketing perspective, a sales perspective, brand awareness, like all the ways you look at the success of these two podcasts for Basecamp in and of itself and how other brands could apply and take some of those lessons learned. Great. Yeah. Happy to talk about this very strange journey I've been on. Awesome. So for those who don't know, I didn't give a intro as to what Basecamp is, but would you mind just giving like a quick little synopsis on that? Of course. Basecamp is a software company. It is headquartered in Chicago, although it's a fully remote company. So we have 56 employees, including myself, spread out all over the world working remotely. And the software that Basecamp makes is for groups to collaborate. So the industry term is project management software, which sounds a little dry, but it is an app that lets groups of people work together towards a common goal. So in this app, you would find ways to track to-dos and tasks. You'll find a schedule. There's a way to keep track of docs and files. There's a live chat feature. There's messages. So it's a very organized way to run a company or to run a nonprofit or to use it to plan any number of things that involve multiple people working asynchronously. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I've been following DHH and Jason Fried, the two founders of Basecamp for quite some time. And I know that You know, they've done a lot of the success of the company in terms of like acquiring new customers has been through content marketing. And so what I'm curious about is how the initial sort of discussion around creating. So the distance was your first podcast. That's right. So where did those conversations come from? Like, what was the actual impetus for starting the distance and turning it into a podcast and ultimately how you looked at what sort of the goals would be from that for the company. Yeah. So the interesting thing about the distance is when we started it, we weren't thinking about podcasting at all. 
It started as a written publication for a pretty specific kind of business story that Jason Fried, the CEO of Basecamp, felt like he wasn't reading enough of elsewhere in the business press, in your, you know, fast companies and your Forbes and your tech crunches and that kind of thing. And and he wanted to read more stories about really old businesses. So he was tired of reading stories that kind of deified very young and relatively inexperienced founders, especially in the startup world, as being uh, titans of business who had something to to teach, which is not to say those people don't have interesting things to say, but he felt like the business press was saturated with lessons, business lessons from people who were being celebrated for maybe having just raised a bunch of venture capital, but had not built out anything sustainable with a track record. And for Jason, he looked around even at his own neighborhood and said, well, how come no one has bothered to get the story of the dry cleaner on the corner, for example, or the hardware store that has been around for decades? And clearly that business owner knows something about building a business and sustaining it through lots of ups and downs. And they just don't get the same kinds of coverage of this kind of very positive coverage that you see startup founders, for example, getting. So he just had that itch that he wanted to scratch. He wanted to read more of these stories. And so he hired me. I was working as a business reporter at the Chicago Tribune at the time. And he hired me to go out and find those stories and report and write them. So we started The Distance as a written publication because that's where my background is. And we would publish one long form story a month about a privately held business that had been around for 25 years or more without taking outside investment. That was the criteria. And we did that for, I want to say, just under a year. And I loved the stories. And I think Jason really liked the stories. And we were able to highlight a lot of different really, really neat businesses. But we just didn't get the kind of traction that, you know, would really justify the existence of this kind of publication, especially one that was kind of sucking up a lot of resources within the company. Mm. I was the only reporter and I was the only writer, but we had someone from our QA team who was taking photographs. And then we had someone from our support team who was doing the copy editing. And we had a designer designing the website for the distance. And then, you know, I was also working with a freelance story editor to have another really strong pair of eyes on the story after I wrote it. So it was definitely taking up a lot of resources and we were just not seeing an audience. I mean, truthfully, what was happening is because we were only publishing once a month because mm. it was just me and we wanted to spend a lot of time making sure these stories were good and they were long. You know, there were probably 2,000 to 25 words each. So they were fairly deeply reported because we were only publishing once a month, we had to rebuild our audience once a month. I felt like we were starting from scratch every single month because publishing once a month is just not enough to keep people coming back, if that makes sense. Yep. There just wasn't enough regularity there. And so after most of a year, it was probably eight or nine months into this experiment, I remember sitting in a room, a conference room with Jason and some other folks and we were talking about what we could do differently to try to build up an audience and think about the distance differently. And someone said, well, what about podcasts? Because right around that time is when Serial was getting really big. And Serial, for a lot of people, including myself, was an introduction to podcasting and got people into podcasting as a medium. And Basecamp, which used to be called 37 Signals, had a podcast way back in the day, like 
years ago when it was really only for nerdy techie people who could figure out RSS feeds and stuff because it wasn't like you could just download Overcast and then listen to a podcast on Overcast or even Apple Podcasts. I mean, you had to really know how to use this technology to set up your RSS feed and listen. But 37 Signals back in the day did have a podcast, you know, it had experimented with this medium before. And I remember bringing it up and saying, oh, we had a podcast before, right? And it's like, there's no institutional memory, like no one remembered anything. So we, <laughs> so we just started from scratch, which is fine because it had been so many years that the technology had really evolved. And there are a lot of great resources out there for starting a podcast. So we started The Distance as a podcast to see if that would work better. And it did. We were able to get more of an audience with these audio stories. And after another few months of The Distance living on as a podcast, Jason kind of called me back in. I think it was an annual review or a six-month review. And he said, you know, I feel like The Distance may have run its course in terms of mm. maybe we've kind of exhausted our capacity to tell these stories. Not like my personal capacity, but maybe we've done everything around this particular topic of highlighting these kinds of businesses. You know, maybe, you know, the premise has kind of naturally come to an end, you know, mm -hmm. and I think he was feeling the that kind of wanderlust, if you will, of kind of, is there something else we can do, you know? And, you know, he really liked, I think, having someone on staff, myself and my co-producer, Sean Hildner, who had already been working at Basecamp as their in-house video producer, and he had kind of pivoted to audio to co-produce the show with me. You know, I think he enjoyed having us on staff and he, it was basically like, could we use your skills to do some other kinds of audio? Is there mm -hmm. something else we can talk about? And so he asked Sean and me to pitch a new show. And so we had kind of a few months during, I remember it was the summer, we had a few months to come up with a new show and we pitched him rework and he really liked it. And we've been doing that ever since. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that's quite a journey. And I guess like ultimately, you know, what's interesting too about some of the philosophies that, that Jason and the whole team at Basecamp has, some stuff that I've read is not necessarily having like quantitative or KPI driven goals like across the company. And so I'm curious, is that, how do you look at the ultimately, like, is it something that just sort of naturally evolved into the podcast and like obviously having awareness and listenership and people talking about it is, is what we want, but it's not necessary. There's no peg that we are hanging the success upon outside of sort of intuition. Is that fair? Or is like, how do you look at that as you went from the distance into rework? Yeah, that's a very fair way to describe it. I mean, Jason and uh, DHH to an extent, although I Jason is kind of like my nominal supervisor and DHH handles more of the technical sides of the company, you know, they do pay attention to things like listenership and subscriber estimates, for example, and downloads per episode. They're not like over our shoulder watching the numbers like a hawk or anything. They have from time to time been like, oh, what do our numbers look like? And certainly the numbers for the distance as a written publication were not justifying its existence in that form. And so that was probably the period during which they paid the most attention to the numbers. 
And when we launched The Distance as a podcast and we saw that the audience we were getting in terms of downloads was bigger and more consistent than Mm. what we were getting with the written publication, that to them was a good indication that we were on the right path in terms of the medium that we were experimenting with. And then as we transitioned to rework, I mean, the story of rework, I sometimes still can't wrap my mind around it because the explosion we saw in audience for rework i mean Mm. i can't remember i'm gonna botch the exact kind of milestone slash statistic because i forgot to look it up before i got on the phone with you but we surpassed like cumulative all-time downloads for the distance like if you took all the downloads we ever got for the distance we surpassed that like with rework within like a few months, I think, of wow. rework launching, if that makes wow. sense. So it was really clear that we had yep. landed on a kind of vein of material that our audience, and audience being people who follow David and Jason and Basecamp and really enjoy hearing from the company, we had landed on a vein of material they really cared about that really resonated with them. Like, sure, they might like glance at my story about a company that makes embalming liquid. And that's actually a story we did for the distance. (laughs) That might be something that would pique their curiosity for maybe a couple seconds. If they saw it like whiz by in their feed, they may be like, oh, that's interesting. But they weren't taking the time necessarily to listen to it and then to tune in for more stories about quirky companies that have been around for a long time. Whereas with Rework, especially because we were putting David and Jason on there to talk about Mm. what's going on behind the scenes or to just share a point of view about something happening in the tech world at that time. I mean, people just eat that stuff up. They love it. They can't get enough, you know? So the numbers for Rework, especially in the early days, I mean, it's like, I couldn't believe the numbers we were seeing. And we've been able to sustain it and grow it very kind of like slowly and gradually, which I really appreciate as well. So David and Jason, I mean, this is a long-winded way of saying that David and Jason, I think, care about numbers on like the broadest possible level in that like if you just look at kind of like a big raw measure of how many people are downloading our episodes, that's kind of like just a big general indication. Do people care about what we're saying? Right. Beyond that... Don't care. No goals. <laughs> it's like no one's, <laughs> no one's checking in. The big thing at Basecamp is, and this took me actually a few years to internalize as well, because this is I'm very achievement oriented, and so this is like a, a very different way of thinking about work mm. and my relationship to work. But at Basecamp, it's a lot about how does the work make you feel, and this is a question that is asked consistently to everyone across the company, whether you're a designer or a developer or you're on our support team or our ops team, how does the work make you feel? And did you have a good day at work? Did you have a good week at work? Did you feel proud of the work you did? Did you feel supported in the work you did? What is something that you wish had not happened? Or what did you need this week that you didn't get? And that's a very different way of thinking about work because it's not about KPIs, which is a term I only learned about a few years ago and then had to Google because I didn't even know what it stood for. (laughs) But it's like it's not about it's very little about the numbers aside from things like uptime, for example, which we care very much about for the general health of the app. But it's very much about how does it feel? Yes. And these are the kind of philosophies that I think have helped, you know, create that that fan base really like of people who feel strongly in that camp as well are like, had a opportunity to to see that side of things for the first time that you don't have to work a particular type of way 
yeah, so I think that progression from, you know, the distance as a written publication to the distance podcast and then onto the rework podcast, like it seems like it's been a very stair step approach up to the thing that is working the best ultimately. And that's great to hear. And I, I'm curious, you know, with Basecamp having historically done a lot of content marketing, you know, the whole team is well known for creating some of the best articles and thought leadership pieces and books, you know, out there. Has there been any discussion as to like the value or the nuance or the difference of, you know, audio, like the format of creating content via audio compared to what has historically been the primary method of distributing information, which is written for Basecamp? Yeah, I mean, I think that First of all, Jason and David are really excellent talkers, and I've been doing this for a long time, not necessarily audio, but I've been interviewing people for my entire professional career. So I feel like I have a pretty good instinct for who's a good talker, and Jason and David are excellent talkers. So they're actually born for this medium. You know, they're very strong writers as well, and they have the books to prove it and the blog posts to prove it, but they are great on audio. And so I think it really plays to their strengths in a way that has been beneficial to them in terms of getting their point of view out there and obviously beneficial to us in building the show because they are very compelling. And when they come on, like when we have David on, especially for the more ranty episodes, the numbers go up, you know, like people (laughs) just enjoy hearing David hulk out in audio form. And another way that I think audio has produced some really nice benefits for Basecamp in terms of what I would say our broad goal is with the podcast, which is just getting our point of view out there. Basecamp loves to get its point of view out there, especially lately. You know, David loves a debate. He loves to argue and he does it a lot on Twitter. If you go to his Twitter feed, he is throwing flames left and right. He loves it. We actually did a whole episode about how much he loves fighting on Twitter. But in the last year, we've had some really interesting, meaty, long episodes where it's just David talking to a peer of his in the tech industry. He talked to Matt Mullenweg of Automatic, and he talked to Dave Tier of 1Password. And most recently, he talked to Jason Kalkanis, this very prominent investor in Silicon Valley. And each of those conversations came out of a Twitter argument. So it's like started with David lobbing some flame on Twitter and a little bit of back and forth with someone, you know, and like people jumping into the fray and turning into kind of like a big to do, a big fracas. And then, you know, in each of those cases, it was like, well, here is like an invitation to come on Mm. to come on the show. And then David just he like kind of grills them. It's like a combination of like a polite conversation slash grilling. But those episodes are some of my favorites because I think it is relatively rare to find kind of two industry folks who will sit down and not just trade platitudes or not just like pat each other on the back for an hour about all the awesome things they're doing, but they'll actually have a conversation about stuff that matters and they will disagree deeply on really important issues and they're not afraid to do it. And it's like there's an element of vulnerability and rawness to that, even though it's like two guys just butting heads in audio form. It's like two white guys talking on a mic, which is like a novel format in this world. But I think there is something special that comes through in those episodes. And David said a few times, actually, to Sean and me, 
he said, you know, I really like having the podcast because it allows me to tease out all this stuff in mm. audio form mm. that you certainly cannot do over Twitter, but you really can't do in written form either. I mean, I've, I've seen the kinds of formats online where maybe you have kind of long letters back and forth, you know, that kind of debate format, but right. there's nothing quite like the the energy and the kind of immediacy of hearing these two guys hash it out in audio form. And I think that has been really neat and something worth exploring in the future too. That's awesome. Yeah, it provides like another layer of context almost to the philosophies of David or Jason or, you know, the people that they're talking to. Whereas like instead of just a, an article from David or Jason or anybody on the team expressing their thoughts on something like you actually have the counter to that, like in real time, having a discussion about it. And that can pull out different thoughts or ways of talking about the issue that maybe they hadn't even thought of or articulated before. And those sort of things, yeah, I can definitely see the value to that for sure. So, you know, what I'm really curious about too is your strategies for producing the podcasts because the production value and the the work that you all put into to both of the shows you've done is quite impressive compared to, you know, what a lot of brands are able to pull off just because it is, as you know, and I'm sure we can talk about, like, it's a lot of work to produce a really great quality podcast. So how do you go about like sort of that production process, like identifying the stories or the people or ideas you want to cover or what the actual process looks like that has allowed you to continue to, to churn out, you know, episode after episode at the clip and the quality that you do? Oh, thank you. That's very kind. I would say that my ability to come up with story ideas and then find people to be on the show to talk about whatever the topic is. That's basically the entire name of the game. And it's what I was trained to do as a journalist to find stories. And I think this is something that can be very daunting to folks who are trying to produce a podcast or to do any kind of storytelling that involves bringing in outside voices. And so I'm bringing 10 plus years of professional journalism training to bear when I go out and find stories, if that makes sense. And, you know, sometimes I start with a topic and I look around for someone who I think would be a good voice to speak on that topic. And that could involve just like looking around at Twitter for interesting voices or just reading around and seeing maybe who's been interviewed in other kinds of media around a certain topic and or just kind of exploring my own network and seeing if I know someone smart who can recommend someone else smart to speak about XYZ. Sometimes I start with the person I find interesting and then just see what kind of episode we can do built around that person's story and expertise. I am fairly skeptical of inbound pitches, mm. I will say. I get a ton of them. I don't know if you do too, but I mean, I always did, right? That's just a part of the nature of the work I do is that I just like being deluged by emails from public relations people all day long. Most of the pitches are terrible. I mean, they've always been terrible. The whole time I was at the Chicago Tribune and at my job before that at a different place, like 99% of pitches, terrible. They seem to have gotten worse now that I am producing a branded podcast that's about like business. I'm using like air quotes because it's like the right. broadest possible topic. And there's so many PR people out there doing the absolute very least 
And by absolute very least, I mean, like, they're literally not even listening to the show. But I probably just, you know, just like ended up on a list of like, here's a podcast about business. And they're like, oh, well, I have a business person. I have a thought leader in business that has something to say. And the pitches are all terrible. So I tend to ignore 99% of the pitches I get. Every once in a while, one floats in that is super interesting. And I'm like, yes. And that's always a delight when something floats in over the transom where I'm like, oh, actually, this is great. And I would not have heard about it. <laughs> had you not sought me out, you know, and to that point on Tuesday, was that yesterday? No, two days ago. I don't know what day it is. So on Tuesday, we released our episode about bookshop.org, which is a relatively new company. It was just founded a few months ago as an alternative to Amazon, and it helps independent bookstores sell online. And they have been doing like heroic work in the last few months to meet this incredible demand because independent bookstores had to close their physical storefronts all over the country and they were pivoting online and bookshop.org just happened to have been around for a couple months. And so they've basically like collapsed like three years of growth into the last three months that they've been on a wild ride. And I, I was able to get that interview through a completely unsolicited inbound pitch from a PR person who said, do you want to interview the CEO of bookshop.org? And I was like, do I? <laughs> but, you know, that it's actually extremely rare that that happens. Most of the time, I am going out and seeking out people that I think would be interesting to talk to. And then, you know, do you think that, like, where do you put the emphasis on your sort of weekly or biweekly or monthly like production process. You mentioned like, it sounds like most of the emphasis is on hashing out the story and the topic and then going and finding those people who can help highlight that story or topic or the reverse, starting with the person and then building the story or topic around them. But in thinking of how like other companies who haven't started a podcast yet, but are interested in it, do you have any like advice for just the process in general and like how to get started so that this isn't so overwhelming, but they can also focus on creating a quality show? Yeah, I think my biggest advice, and this is not advice I personally follow, so you can take this <laughs> advice with a large grain of salt. I would advise to actually work in seasons. We kind of do this at Rework in that the last couple of years, Sean and I have just arrived at the end of the summer so exhausted that we just like have taken off August. And so we have kind of like reached a natural stopping point. That's been the case in the last couple of years. I don't know what it's going to look like this year. But for someone who's just starting out, and this is advice I've given before because I do get asked a lot, like, how can I get going? I think that thinking in seasons is good because mm -hmm. then you are just committing to producing a finite amount of episodes. You can set the season for as long as you want. You can say, I'm going to do six episodes. I'm going to do eight, 10, whatever it is. But you can decide kind of what makes the most sense for you. And then you're only looking for, you know, stories to fill those slots. And then you can take the time to produce them really well and spend a lot of time on editing. Like I can't, it's hard to overstate the importance of editing. We spend a lot of time editing and, you know, we devote a lot of time during the week to that. And I think that if you are able to put some constraints on just the number of episodes you're going to commit to, then you can really spend the time to edit them and get them really good and figure out what you're doing. And then you can kind of release them as you feel comfortable, right? So maybe you have them all done and then you release them, you know, in a compact season once a week. Or if you want to space it out, however you want to do it. But I think working in seasons is smart, especially at the beginning, because with us, I mean, we just 
have a show a week and it's just two of us. So <laughs> there are definitely some weeks where it feels super stressful because it's just like the treadmill doesn't stop, you know? Right. Do you try to, I mean, I'm sure this is the treadmill is just never ending on that, that weekly cadence, which I'm very familiar with as well. Do you try to set like a goal of working ahead X number of episodes or like, do you work on one at a time or do you work on multiple at a time or try to batch, you know, interviews or any other sort of tactical strategies for the production process? We're always working on multiple episodes at a time, and it is quite a bit to keep track of. But we run the whole show on Basecamp and Dropbox. It works pretty well. So we're able to keep things organized. And because it's just Sean and me, we're able to communicate very closely about the status of all these different episodes. I'm also a hyper-organized person. So actually, I have Basecamp like in my brain. At any time, I can probably <laughs> I can tell you the exact status of every episode we're working on. Like This one I have the interview recorded for, but I haven't cut the interview yet. This one, I've done a rough cut and I've sent it to Sean and I'm waiting for him to send me feedback. This one, you know, I've reviewed Sean's cut of it and now I just have to tweak the scripts and this one we have to record tracking for. I mean, that's usually the kind of the broad strokes of where we are with different episodes. So much of our production schedule is determined by guests availability and their schedule. So even if I have a brilliant idea for an episode, if I send out feelers and people don't get back to me, or for example, right now we're in a global pandemic and there's protests going on everywhere. This is like a terrible, it's a terrible time. It's a terrible time to be sending emails and asking people for mm. anything, you know? Yeah. And so this is obviously, these are unprecedented times as all these emails from brands mm. keep telling me, but <laughs> even in normal times, if we can remember back to normal times, it's like people's schedules are very different, you know? And so sometimes like the worst is when I have everything lined up and I can see, okay, I'm talking to this person on Monday. I can get the first cut done by Wednesday. I'll send it to Sean and then he'll send it back to me at this time. We can get it out on this date. And then, you know, the person gets sick or the mm. ghost or right. they have to reschedule for whatever reason. And sometimes it's like you are opening the cupboard and being like, oh no, we don't have anything. The <laughs> nice thing is like, we can always do a rerun. We can always take a week off. And I just put a lot of pressure on myself to have something out every week. But I have to remember that it is okay. Like, it is okay to take a week off. And lots of great podcasts, including podcasts I love, like, for example, like Reply All. Reply All will just take weeks off at a time. I don't know what they're <laughs> up to. I, you know, and I, I assume right. that they're just like, working on the next thing. It's okay. There's a lot of content out there. So I'm not like at their door. I'm not at Spotify's door with like a pitchfork and a torch <laughs> being like, where's my weekly episode? It's fine. Like listeners will survive. They will survive without having me in their ear holes for a week, you know? And at the beginning of the pandemic, when shelter in place started and we had to go home, Sean and I were like, you know what? We're just going to take three weeks off, you know? And we like didn't ask permission you know, because at base camp, it's very autonomous. Like I was stressed out of my mind. So was Sean, so was everyone else. And I was like, we're just going to take three weeks off. So we took three weeks off. I was still working during that time, but we just took off the pressure of having to put out something. Right. And then that gave us some breathing room to plan and figure out what stories do we want to tell right now that will be helpful to our listeners, will not be opportunistic and will be relevant and that we can reasonably produce within, you know, this time frame with our new home recording setups. I love that advice. I mean, those two things, it really helps take the pressure off, like you said. So number one being, you know, the season's based approach, 
so that when you launch a show, it doesn't necessarily have to feel like this thing that goes on in perpetuity for years, like that you're committing to, you can at least frame it that way. And for the listeners so that they know, okay, this is season one, there likely will be a break at some point, given the fact that it is a season. And then two, giving yourself some breathing room to take a week off when you need it and know that, you know, the true fans, the ones that are really listening to the show and really getting the most out of the show, they're not going to go away after, you know, having a, a week or two or even three without an episode. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've ever read anything from Tim Urban, uh, I believe his name is, of Wait But Why. He writes articles at Wait But Why. And sometimes his ar- his articles are incredibly popular, but he'll take months sometimes. Like, you know, he'll, he'll say, hey, I'm working on a new article and you won't hear from him for like six months. And then he'll come out and then the article will release and it will be like something that just blows everybody's mind. So there's no perfect like way to do it is what I'm hearing. And I fully am on board with that, that process. You know, one other thing is in relation to the success of the show, what have you seen be the most successful levers for marketing the podcast and growing the listenership? Or have you tried different things that could help get it in front of people outside of Basecamp's, you know, current world? And what have those been and, and how has that worked? Yeah, I think we have not been the best at this. Some things we've tried are we have bought ads on Overcast. We haven't done this in a while, but they have an ad program and we would buy, I think a couple times we might have bought across all categories and other times just in the business category. And that would get us you know, a decent uptick in downloads and I think some conversion to subscribers. So that was really nice. I mean, I think that, you know, how people talk about the best way to get people to listen to a show is if they hear about that show on a different show. And I think that that is kind of true for buying ads on Overcast as well, because people are already looking at their phone in their podcast app. So you know that they're already podcast listeners. And if you happen to catch their attention, especially if they're listening to a show on the same topic, business, that's a very broad topic, but, you know, they might be inclined to at least check it out. So we've done that. What else have we done? Honestly, not very much. I will say that our main marketing promotional strategy has been just to ride the wave of David's anger and (laughs) pay attention to when a ranch of his or some hobby horse of his really explodes in a way that we can capitalize on, which I know sounds very opportunistic, but I mean, I'm making a corporate branded podcast that represents the company's point of view. So that's my mandate anyway. And just as an example of this, this was back in... I've completely lost track of time. I think this was in 2020. Could have been 2019. Who's to say? But David got really upset at Apple and Goldman Sachs. I don't know if you remember this, but he discovered that, and you know, even the particulars have kind of faded from my mind a little bit, but I believe that he and his wife both got Apple cards, the Apple Mm. credit card, and his wife got different terms than he did. And he was like, these algorithms are completely sexist. And it really blew up. I mean, he ended up on like CNBC talking about it. He became like a national news story very briefly, and it was covered everywhere. So it's like, you see something happen like that. And you're like, well, we definitely need to capitalize on this moment, right? There's a lot of eyeballs on David and consequently on Basecamp right now. And so what can we do? And 
we have to do something quickly as well, right? Because the news cycle turns on so quickly that your window of opportunity where people are focused on this and kind of open to hearing what you have to say on this topic is going to be relatively limited. And so what we did was, first of all, I thought that it was really important that we not put David on the show, or at least not make him the star of that episode, because I was like, he's been on CNBC, like he doesn't need to be on our show (laughs) repeating the same points for an hour. And I was like, if the whole issue here, the real issue is algorithmic bias, it is time to cede the floor to other people who are experts on this and whose voices don't usually get heard, right? Because I think that one of the most important questions a reporter can ask, and I still consider myself a reporter, is whose voice is missing from the conversation around a certain topic, right? So I'm always challenging myself to look even further for voices and not just default to the person who's most accessible or the person who's so good at self-promotion that they're like right in front of your face and you're like, oh, great, like you've been on 50 podcasts. It'll be really easy to book you on mine, right? Mm. So for that episode, I was like, we can have David on for a little bit just to set up the story, but then I need him to exit stage right. And since we're talking about algorithmic bias, I want women on the show to talk about algorithmic bias and I want a woman of color. So I found Dr. Ruha Benjamin, who's a professor at Princeton. She's brilliant, and she was, like, on fire. We had a great conversation all about algorithmic bias. And then for the second half of the show, we brought on Mata Zepeda from Zebras Unite, which is this movement that is pitching a different way to build a business, a tech business in Silicon Valley. And she came on to talk about the barriers that women and women of color have historically faced in terms of securing financing for businesses and that kind of thing. So I was really proud of that episode. And we got a lot of listens for that, you know, and David was very helpful in promoting it. And that was an example of, you know, we didn't like buy an ad or anything, but it was like David was in the spotlight. So Mm. we took advantage to be like, okay, this is the way we can participate in the conversation in a helpful way is to elevate the voices of people, women, women of color to talk about this topic and to kind of like take the ball from David and run further with it because we really should have been listening to them all along. Right. And because of the systems we have set up in this world, David is always going to have a megaphone handed to him. People love hearing from an authoritative white guy on every single topic, even topics that don't pertain to white men. And, you know, in this case, David was like a very good spokesman for this issue. But then with the podcast, we deliberately had him hand off the baton to people. Does that make sense? That makes so much sense. Yeah. And I mean, it it doesn't sound like that's necessarily a proactive kind of quote unquote strategy is, you know, finding these very in real time topical, you know, pieces of relevancy with what's going on in the world necessarily. But would you say that that has been, you know, for that episode and others, like that is one approach that you're looking at to be able to, to really kind of encourage that immediacy of awareness for a particular episode and potentially grow the listenership as a result. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we're always looking at what are our strengths and what can we bring to the table in terms of the conversation on topics that we can do, not necessarily better than anyone else, but where do we have Mm. an opportunity to come in and say something that will be helpful and will be maybe educational and will help our listeners think about an issue and take it further. And so, you know, it's interesting to look at how rework the show has evolved because when we started out, we were exploring a lot of topics that are right in the Basecamp wheelhouse that Jason and David have been talking about, public speaking about, blogging about for a decade, right? Things like 
meetings are toxic and workaholics aren't heroes. Those are like base camp chestnuts, you know, we always like to fall back on those. And so that's what we were doing at the beginning is basically I was like literally opening up Rework the Book and taking chapter titles and being like, okay, we'll build episodes around these chapter titles. And if you look at what we've been doing in, let's say, like pre-pandemic in the months before the pandemic, now we are constantly hammering on about privacy, about dismantling the surveillance economy, about dismantling big tech Mm. and being really critical of monopoly power in big tech. I mean, and you could be like, oh, you've gotten political. But like, first of all, everything's political. Tech is definitely political. And we're not afraid to explore those topics. And we have a very strong point of view about those topics. And we have a platform. So we're going to talk about it. And I think that, you know, is it marketing? Of course, it's marketing because it's like everything is branding and marketing. And I'm doing a corporate podcast, right? So this is our version of corporate propaganda (laughs) is to try to dismantle the surveillance economy. And I mean, I think we have uh, kind of this really uneasy, at least I do, relationship with capitalism. And we are questioning it always. We're questioning it internally. And I enjoy questioning it externally. And, you know, I'm really grateful for David and Jason that I'm allowed to do that and that I have the autonomy to do it and that, you know, they back us up when we we talk about these things. Yeah, that's incredible. And, you know, it just sounds like a continued evolution, you know, of the show and the concepts and the topics. You're not being so tunnel vision on on one particular angle and then just forcing yourself to continue to create episodes around that or that style. So I, I love seeing that evolution. And you know, outside of like attracting new listeners, do you use the show in any sort of proactive way with either current customers or like any other unique use cases or benefits that the podcast has had that would be potentially surprising outside of, you know, hey, we've built up a good listenership of the show and people are paying attention and we're able to share a point of view, which is, you know, the number one pillar that we're looking for when creating content is being able to share a point of view, but like, you know, are there any other ways that you distribute the episodes that might be a little bit surprising and uh, potentially beneficial? I don't think this is necessarily beneficial, but it is one thing that I really enjoy about the show. And one thing that really keeps me going is that because we have built up, I think, a lot of goodwill with listeners and because Jason and David have given Sean and me so much autonomy, we every once in a while will just do an episode because we feel like it even if it really interests no one (laughs) outside of ourselves. And we can do that knowing that we're not just going to have our audience disappear overnight, you know. And so I really enjoy that because Basecamp is very encouraging of its employees to just like do weird stuff that interests them, you know, and just do stuff because we want to and because like the work is fun and interesting, not because you can necessarily draw a line from that piece of work to anything concrete for the business, you know what I mean, in terms of ROI or bringing in customers or anything like that. And so, for example, we did an episode that was an oral history of this really weird Quiznos TV commercial that came out like 15 years ago. So we did that episode and that episode didn't have much to do with anything except that I just got curious about it one day and was like, oh, could I talk to everyone who was involved in the making of this commercial? (laughs) And they all end up being available. So we just did it. I'm not saying that episode got like great numbers. You know what I mean? It certainly didn't perform as well as like a DHH ranty episode, but 
we did it and I loved it and it was really fun to do. And maybe some people got a little bit of joy out of it. You know, during the holidays, Sean and I did a whole episode where we just recapped a holiday rom-com on Netflix. I mean, <laughs> clearly that has nothing to do with anything. That's the Sean and me goofing off. So sometimes this is very pretentious, but sometimes Sean and I will talk about the Steven Soderbergh model Steven Soderbergh, the director, he has this thing where it's kind of like one for me, one for you. He'll mm. go and do a studio picture and then he'll do a weird quirky picture that's just for himself. Mm. And so sometimes Sean and I think about the show like that, too. Like we'll do a bunch of episodes that are kind of what our audience expects of us, that it's kind of like right in our bread and butter. And then we will do an episode maybe just to let off steam or just to pursue a topic that we find personally interesting, even if it's you can't really make an argument for it being like a base camp thing. It's super interesting, actually, because even though potentially, I mean, you mentioned that the numbers for those episodes aren't necessarily as equal or equivalent to those that, you know, with DHH ranting or sort of the the episodes that the audience might come to expect. But my hunch would be on that sort of thing that potentially there's a subset of the listenership that absolutely loves those episodes, even though it is a smaller subset. So you're you can kind of potentially almost build up like super fans through the flexibility of the type of episodes you're creating and throwing some random ones, you know, quote unquote out there that may be quirky or a little bit off brand. But at the same time, it's really appealing to, let's just say, 10 percent. And the other 90% are, they think it's cool, it's fine, it's, you know, no big deal, but 10% absolutely love it. And obviously, this is just me, like, hypothetically speaking, but I think it's interesting. And another case to be made for not being so focused on having to create the same thing every week at the same cadence, at the same, you know, type of guests, same type of topics, like all of these things, and you're able to play around and, and really explore and experiment. So, yeah, I mean, I guess kind of wrapping up here, I'd be curious your thoughts on, you know, like I mentioned earlier, uh, potentially like a brand who is thinking about podcasting is obviously aware of it. It's getting pretty popular now, but doesn't really know where to start or doesn't know if it's actually the thing that they should invest their time, energy, resources into. What would you say, like, what are some of the lenses through which they could make that decision if they should start a podcast or or any sort of podcast strategy are there some criteria you think that would be good to look at that decision through yeah i mean i think the first question to ask is why does this need to be done via audio you know is whatever you're trying to say would it best be served in a blog post or in a video or in a poster or something you know not all stories were made for audio and you know you have to make sure that whatever you're trying to say you can get some good tape, as they say in the biz. You know, is this a story that requires audio? You know, what are the strengths of audio? And are they going to play well to whatever you're trying to to put out there? There are some topics I think that are much harder to do in audio. You know, maybe they're too numbers heavy or, you know, you're not going to be able to find someone who can, you know, if you're looking for a really good voice to kind of distill an issue and maybe that person isn't out there or whatever it may be, you know, not everything was made for audio, right? Like some stuff is still great in a magazine article, right? So, or a blog post or a tweet. <laughs> like, should this be a tweet <laughs> instead of a full podcast episode? Uh, valid question. And so I think that's a really good 
question to ask. Like, don't do podcasting just because you heard that brands are podcasting or that people mm. are podcasting or that people are listening to podcasts more. Like, you have to really justify, like, why is this audio specifically? And I would say that, you know, invest in some good tools and spend the time to edit. You know, like, don't just interview, like, your CMO for 45 minutes and then just, like, dump the raw audio out there with, like, a little music thing at the beginning and end. Like, I don't know. I don't think anyone wants to listen to that. <laughs> like, I don't. You know, like, I listen to a few branded podcasts, but, you know, I look at the wide swath of podcasts out there in, you know, my peer group or whatever, and, like, a lot of them don't look that interesting. I mean, I just, I think that a lot of corporate executives especially, like, are maybe a little bit overestimating the quality of what they have to mm. say. Like, your typical corporate executive, and I say this as someone who you know, again, spent like a decade as a business reporter. So I interviewed a lot of executives like they're usually like so media trained and have been coached to say basically nothing ever that you put them in front of a mic and it's like they don't they're just like speaking in generalities and platitudes. And it's super boring. Like it's just like dead tape. You know what right. I mean? So I know that's maybe a hard thing to hear if you are working in the marketing department of a company and your CMO is like super hot to trot on like being on the mic every week to talk about stuff. But I don't know. It's uh, you don't want to just be like putting stuff out there, you know, because it takes a lot of work to edit and to make good tape. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And what do you think? would make audio the choice to your point earlier of audio over like, should this be audio or should this be a tweet or should this be a blog post? How do you look at that decision, whether it should be audio or not? Is it something where like feeling of having the nuance of hearing the person's voice say it in their own words and being able to hear like their emphasis and emotion and inflection like would add value to it? Or, or is there any other factors like when deciding, you know, what, what medium this should be when considering like audio versus the other ones? Yeah, I think it's like, does this topic or story come alive with the human voice and having a person telling a story and kind of like the way you would want to hear a story told over dinner? Remember when we used to go to dinner with people like a story told over dinner or drinks or at lunch or in, in a group of friends, you know, like audio to me is this really incredible empathy building machine because you can hear someone's voice and they're right in your ear. I'm not the first person to make this point, but, you know, I don't find audio to be good for just like broadcasting, you know, like a corporate message necessarily, something that's like super polished and has like been through like your legal department and your PR department. But if it's like someone just on a mic speaking like fairly honestly and not in a rehearsed way, and there's some a point to be made that can really come alive when you hear it from that person's voice. I mean, maybe if they can attach like a personal story to it or something, I think that's that's really good. That's when like the audio really makes the case for itself. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, well, and thank you so much. So before we get out, the last question I have for you is where do you see all this going? Like podcasting has been around, you know, what, for 15 years or, or longer at this point, but it seems to be really hitting its stride right now, you know, but I still think, I mean, just my personal opinion, like we are at the very, very early days of where all this is going. And I'm curious, like from your standpoint, as someone who's been creating, you know, an awesome podcast, a couple of awesome podcasts for Basecamp for a few years now, like. Where do you see how other companies or how this is all going to progress 
going forward with the use of podcasting, the use of on-demand audio over the next, you know, however long you might want to forward look five, 10 years, like whatever it is. Like, how do you think about that? I mean, I don't see it slowing down. And, you know, I think right now is like a weird time to judge podcasts because the listener numbers are all over the place. You know, you've probably seen this too, if you've read some of the coverage of the industry, like are people listening to more podcasts or fewer podcasts? And, you know, do they want to hear really topical things or not topical things? But I think that podcasting is around to stay, certainly. And that I guess it really depends as far as like what brands do in podcasting. I think that it will depend a lot, honestly, on how these next few months play out, Mm. because everything is on fire right now. And brands have a lot of brands have shown themselves to be completely useless in these unprecedented times. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, I don't know what brands are doing right now. Like they're emailing their customers being like, we're here for you. Like, really? You know, it's like (laughs) I get I'm getting all these emails being like, we're here for you. Please buy our product. It's like now more than ever, you can buy our product. It's like, oh, thank you so much. And now with all the Black Lives Matter protests, brands are like falling down all over themselves to attempt to show Mm. solidarity. And a lot of them are doing it very poorly. They're doing it very hypocritically. And I think that we are probably due overdue for a big reckoning about like our relationship to brands Mm. and our relationship to corporations and our relationship to consumption and the companies that are, you know, pushing consumption. And I think. I just wonder if we are maybe approaching a moment where a lot of people are going to be questioning their relationship with consumption and whether that will shake out in some ways, you know, across all kinds of consumer facing industries. And that might affect decision making in terms of like whether a brand wants to put a podcast out there. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. I honestly don't know. This is probably not a very good answer to your question, but I'm not seeing a lot of like fondness towards brands right now and like towards like influencers. I mean, this like whole economy we've created around like feeling affinity towards brands like it's weird, like it's weird. (laughs) It should be questioned. And I think that that will have repercussions for the podcasting industry as well. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, right now with everything that's been going on, like people's habits have been disrupted and like their podcast listening is a habit. So like people who used to drive to work are no longer driving to work. And that's a huge percentage of how people listen to their podcasts, for example. And so like finding ways to fit that in to their day, it's been sort of all over the place to your point of, you know, some people are, some people aren't, some people have just started listening given they have more time now, you know? So it's like really hard to gauge ultimately like how that all shakes out. But yeah, it is. And then for the brand side, I I totally agree. It could be good or it could be bad. It just depends on what sort of place you're coming from. But if you want to uh, get your point of view across as a brand and you have good quality things you want to say, but you've never done them before, a podcast could be a good channel for that. On the flip side, it could also highlight, you know, a lack of quality thought or Uh, thought leadership or expertise or sensitivity or all these other things. So it can kind of go both ways, but yeah. So I, well, Will and I, I really, really, really appreciate your time here. We'll continue to be a huge fan and supporter of the rework podcast and 
everything that you guys are doing at Basecamp. And I would really recommend everybody going, if you haven't yet listened, go to rework.fm. And if you have to pick one episode, Waylon, maybe you can give your choice for the the best one episode for people to go first listen to if they've never listened before. But the bookshop around the corner, I haven't listened to that episode yet, but that sounds incredibly interesting and timely right now. It's your latest episode, number 85. So that would be where I point people to. But Waylon, do you have anywhere else you would want to point people to? I think that we had this episode called Extreme Capitalism with Jason Kalkanis. Great, nice inflammatory title there. <laughs> but that is David talking to this investor and, you know, gets pretty intense, you know, and you can really hear some very fundamental points of disagreement about the way the economy works and how it should work and who's benefiting from it and who's being exploited from it and whether people are being exploited by it. They don't even quite agree on that, which makes it interesting. So if you want to hear David at Peak David arguing with venture capitalists and airing, I think, a lot of the existential dread that we're feeling around what our economic systems are doing right now, that would also be a good one. And then the Quiznos one is very fun and light. <laughs> if, you, if you don't feel like engaging with extreme capitalism right now, you can engage in quirky capitalism and listen to that Quiznos episode. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, those are great. Everyone go check those out. The one with Jason is a bonus episode, but it's right after episode number 72. So you can all go find those there. Uh, Waylon. Oh, thanks for having the episode numbers handy. I never know oh, any of the episode numbers. Yeah, no, I, I lose track of them too all the time. <laughs> Anywhere else, Waylon, people should go check out you, your work, anything in general you'd want to point people to? Oh, so let me think. Rework is on Twitter at Rework Podcast. And then Basecamp is obviously Basecamp.com at Basecamp. And we're launching a new email. I say we mm. as if I had any part in this. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, but Basecamp is launching a new email service called Hey. You can find that at Hey.com. And we're coming into a period where we're going to be doing a bunch of episodes around kind of the making of Hey and email and kind of our philosophy around email and stuff. So stay tuned for that. Awesome. Yeah, I'm on the wait list for that. Excited for that as well. Okay. So thank you again, Waylon. Really appreciate your time. And uh, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you.